Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Scott Blackburn, the Veterans Affairs Department's Acting Chief Information Officer, and Dominic Cassatt, the Veterans Affairs Department's Chief Information Security Officer. Scott, Dominic, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. Glad to be here. The reason we're talking is you guys do a really excellent job every year of putting out kind of a year in review about the progress you guys have made, the changes that have happened, the transformations, the initiatives, and and where they're at. I want to start with the 2017 year in review report that you all issued maybe a month, month and a half ago now. Let me get some highlights from your end. Let me start with Scott. And then, you know, what else stood out to you in terms of accomplishments? Anything surprised you? Give me some general thoughts, Scott. I think 2017 was a was a very good year for us, and I, I'm very proud of what the team has, has accomplished. And of course, the, the secretary has, you know, five priorities, and and we're supporting each one of them. Uh, technology really underpins all of what we are uh, doing and the progress that we're making uh, at the uh, VA. Dominic and his team are doing a terrific job securing VA's uh, IT infrastructure. Very very proud of the the progress there and closing out OIG recommendations, securing medical devices, blocking malware attempts. Very excited about how we're improving the the veteran experience, moving to more self-service tools and online, the White House hotline, using analytics and rolling out things like ReachVet to uh, really, uh, you know, help out with our our prevention efforts. We're incredibly proud. Uh, We're making good progress on electronic health record, and we're, we're excited to be hopefully announcing that very soon. And the, the Lighthouse initiative that we've recently uh, rolled out, too, that that was the result of a, of a couple of years of really hard work and very proud of how far the, uh, the team has come. All right, so there's a lot there. A lot of this we're going to cover throughout our discussion today. So, But let me go back to uh, one of the things that you talk about technology underpinning so much of what the VA does, and I think that's true for every agency. Talk a little bit about that. you got to get the infrastructure right. You have to get the, the underlying foundation right so everything else can work. Has that been kind of the focus over the last year, two, three years from VA to really have a solid foundation? It has been, and I would say we're kind of going at it from both angles. So on the foundation, the VA has a very complex, very difficult legacy uh, IT environment that is the result of building the agency uh, over, over several decades. So we don't have one VISTA. We have 130 different VISTAs. We have so much of our legacy, you know, infrastructure that is, you know, 40 years old, things on COBOL, et cetera. So uh, we really need to modernize that, streamline that. That is the foundation that we, we build upon, and we're, we're really pushing on, on improving that. But we're also taking the other angle, which is the veteran-in angle, which is the human-centered design, understanding what veterans like myself, you know, go through when they're interacting with the VA and, and making it easier, making it easier to access appointments, making it quicker to file claims and quicker to get appeals, improving transparency. So one thing that we, uh, we are rolling out right now, as a matter of fact, I think we just soft-launched it, is a uh, appeals transparency tool so that rather than seeing that your appeal is in progress and in progress for multiple years, which can be incredibly frustrating, uh, actually seeing where it is in the, in the queue and, and having more information on who has it, what they're doing with it, so that veterans understand and we're building trust with, uh, with veterans. So it's, it's really both those angles that we've been focusing on. And one of the keys with that, let's take that appeals transparency tool, a lot of that gets built on new technology, but you need some of that data to pull in from the old technology, right? So you're integrating the old with the new. 
with the idea of, okay, eventually we're going to move everything to the new technology, the more modern, whether it's the cloud or whether it's just a, a modern language. Do I have that correct? Yeah, you have it exactly correct, and, and uh, that, that is a challenge. <laughs> That's what makes IT in the VA and IT in government a little bit more difficult than it is in other places. In the private. We, we do have that legacy systems that we need to work with. We do have data that we need to uh, transfer, and, and it, it's kind of like building the airplane while, while flying it. That analogy works well for so many agencies. I know that. <laughs> We've talked to – we hear that from a lot of CIOs, and, and it's, it's a very common – theme that, that we hear. Let, let me move over to Dominic, uh, because one of the things that jumped out to me when I read through the 2017 year review was absolutely the progress around cybersecurity. And I've been covering VA cybersecurity for a solid eight, nine years now, if not longer. And you guys have had a really tough run of 18, 19 straight years of material weaknesses, as according to your IG, when it comes to cybersecurity. Seems like you're about to stop that, that bad trend. Talk a little bit about the progress you're making around cybersecurity. We are very excited about our IG noted in our most recent IG review from 2017 that they've noticed a significant improvement in our uh, our cybersecurity posture in their audits that were conducted over last year. And that's the first time we've heard them say that in since I've been at VA, but for many years. So uh, I think it's a testament to the work that VA has done uh, since we published our 2015 cybersecurity strategy and established our enterprise cybersecurity strategy team who executed against a integrated master schedule of over 3,000 line items to deliver 35 different plans of action to, to support uh, cybersecurity uh, activities and noted deficiencies. So you, you were talking a little earlier about get, getting the foundation straight and these foundational things. And what we got out of that um, enterprise cybersecurity strategy team was a lot of that foundational stuff that was missing. We got it in place. So now in 2017, we updated our strategy to sort of set the next wave of activities. And what you'll see in that new strategy is a lot more work in terms of institutionalizing all these foundational capabilities into our culture and into the bedrock that is under uh, all of our IT systems and these innovative technologies that we're building. So uh, 2018 will be a very busy year trying to take advantage of everything we've done over the past couple of years. All right, Dominic, maybe you're going to pass this to Scott, but I'm gonna, maybe I'll put you both on, on the hot seat for a second here and ask, are we not going to see a material weakness from cybersecurity in 2018 or 2019? How confident do you feel? So I'll, I'll take that one, and uh, I'm very optimistic that if we don't recover from the material weakness uh, for this year's audits, we will see, again, a, a notation from our IG that they've seen significant improvement. You know, we've been told by our IG that they need to see a trend to see not only that we've fixed some of these these persistent, but that, they, that it's going to stick, that they're going to stay fixed. So I'm very cautiously optimistic. I, I think we have very well addressed uh, the, the findings they had from last year. We were very careful to map everything they found to our NIST security controls and come up with plans of action to address them. So I'm optimistic that if not in 2018, then certainly in 2019, we will see this, uh, this material weakness lifted from the VA. Just to add on top of that, one of the things that you know, I've talked with Dominic and the, and the, the team about is just going out there and, and leaving everything on the field, if you will, uh, as far as going out there and continuing to make progress. Uh, 
you know, whether we end up off the list or, or you know, I, I trust our, our IGA team does a uh, fantastic job. They're very thorough. We have very good open dialogue exchanges with them. And, you know, if, if uh, we're, we're hoping that is our goal uh, to get off that, we are going to absolutely make progress against that. And, and we'll see where we end at the at the end of the year. What stood out to you when you look back over the last year and said, wow, uh, that was impressive or that surprised me in terms of the progress you made, whether it was PIV or was it w- about software or, or whatever you guys did? Where do you think you made the most progress? Well, well let me start on this and then I'll, I'll let Don go into the into the details. So looking back in the past year, both of my time as the CIO and as the, the deputy secretary, I'm really proud of the leadership that Dominic and, and his team have uh, put in place. And, and we're, we're starting to bring in just what, what appears to be, uh, you know, not only stability, but but great talent into the organization and, and structure. We're, we're working very closely with the uh, DOD and uh, obviously where, where Dom came from to uh, apply their best practices to the to the VA. So uh, I'm seeing huge strides and very, very, even more than like individual accomplishments like blocking malware and and how well we did, you know, for example, uh, when the WannaCry virus uh, struck us last year. But but just putting the more kind of systematic, you know, that will live long going forward. But, Dom, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, you know, some of the the key things uh, that I think that we've done uh, over the past year, uh, that make me proud are our implementation of PIV or two-factor authentication. When I arrived at the VA a couple of years ago, um, I think we were at around 12% PIV compliance, uh, and we are well over 90% PIV compliance for a two-factor authentication compliance for um, non-privileged users. So that's that's our entire workforce. And VA has a pretty huge workforce. We're at about 350,000 people. So that was no small feat to get everybody uh, over 90%. And, and the remainder are really sort of exceptions in the field where we have very tactical environments or pristine surgical environments where it's not um, feasible to have PIV cards or uh, where we are uh, rotating in staff and what so that's pretty good to hit that number. We've also made some great strides in improving our risk management process and our authorization, our information system authorization process. When I arrived at VA again a couple of years ago, um, we had many, many systems that uh, were out of tolerance in terms of their system authorizations or ATOs as NIST refers to them. And we've since updated that process, improved our automated tools for the workflows for that process and created better accountability back to the system owners for those systems for them to ensure they're securing those systems and then authorizing them in a timely way. So we're in a state now where we're more persistently at 100% ATO uh, issuance for all of our systems across the network. You know, another thing that we've done is we've significantly reduced the number of elevated privileged users on our networks by 96% since uh, 2015. So we had a huge number of people on our networks who had um, elevated privileges that really didn't need them. So we took the time to, uh, it it wasn't a popular job, uh, but we took the time to remove those elevated privileges from those who really didn't need them and really focused on the people who actually did need that so we can have better control of our networks. So um, a, a lot of great things over the past year. 
There's a lot to unpack there, and there's even more to talk about because uh, the other thing that, that we definitely want to jump into is the risk management framework. But before we do that, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can talk more cybersecurity. My guests today are Scott Blackburn, the Veterans Affairs Department's Acting Chief Information Officer, and Dominic Cassatt, the Chief Information Security Officer at VA. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Scott Blackburn, the Veterans Affairs Department's Acting Chief Information Officer, and Dominic Cassatt, the Veterans Affairs Department's Chief Information Security Officer. Now, before break, we started talking about cybersecurity, so I want to continue that discussion. And one of the big things that came uh, across in your year in review was around a risk management framework, and the fact is you guys developed it, and it's now going to be implemented. So, again, I'll open it to either Dominic or Scott. Talk a little bit about what that framework is and how are you guys going about implementing it. You know, everything we do in cybersecurity sort of uh, is affected and revolves around our, our implementation of the NIST risk management framework. You know, all the steps that are required to identify your security requirements, implement the security controls, assess them, and then authorize the system for connection to the network and then perform continuous monitoring. So we keep that at the heart of everything that we do, and we try to relate back all the security-related activities to that process and to our security control baselines, rather than in the past, we sort of had these little stovepipes, cybersecurity activities that were very hard to keep track of, and they weren't relatable back to any sort of central effort. So now everything that we do, we refer back to what step or phase of the risk management framework they're in. Uh, And another thing worth mentioning is we've also, with our 2017 uh, cybersecurity strategy that we published in October of last year, is we we oriented all all of our strategies around the NIST uh, cybersecurity framework, which the the president signed a a directive back in May of last year indicating that all federal should uh, follow the cybersecurity framework. Now, uh, the good news is the the risk management framework uh, has a lot of similarities to the cybersecurity framework. Uh, It's just that there's a difference in the way the mechanisms are talked about. So we were well on our way, but we want to make sure that we, we can always provide a testament to the fact that everything that we do is in support of that RMF, so we have a measured, concerted, and accountable process for authorizing systems Uh, to connect to the network uh, before they do, and then very importantly, to perform the ongoing continuous monitoring and hygiene, uh, cyber hygiene of those systems once they are on the network. You're never really done with them. You get them out there and on the network, but then, you know, your work really has just begun to keep everything in a security tolerance. And is this concept of risk management, while it's clear in many regards, is that being kind of pushed down and and pushed up, if you will, pushed down to the people in the field, and then obviously pushed up to the senior executives that that Scott and Dominic, you guys deal with every day, to say, hey, we have to understand the risk before we go forward with this new project under Lighthouse, for instance, or before we launch a appeals transparency site, what are the risks around this? Is that discussion happening more and more in, in a different way than maybe before? It really is, and we've sort of turned the discussion from a discussion about a checklist of cybersecurity controls you have to do or you don't get on the network to, hey, this is really truly risk management. You, your baseline of security controls is your reference list. 
it doesn't necessarily mean you implement all the controls in that baseline exactly the way uh, they're described uh, and exactly the way the implementation procedures tell you. It's about being aware of everything that's on that list and making sure you've accounted for all the risks that those controls mitigate and that if you didn't do a control or you couldn't do a control because of your environment, you've looked at it and you've made sure you have compensating controls or measures in place uh, to account for that. So this is this is sort of a new discussion, uh, whereas everybody was used to be very, you know, sort of frightened by the fact that they didn't have a fully executed checklist. And uh, instead, it's a more productive discussion about the fact that, hey, you know, we in cybersecurity are here to empower your mission and make sure you meet your mission objectives. It's about confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data so you can achieve your mission. We're not here to be a barrier and get in the way. So we have to strike that proper balance between security control implementation and, and mission objectives. And that's definitely more the way the, the conversations are going these days. Yeah, and just to, uh, to pile on top of that, I think one of the things that's also uh, really helping us is our, our focus on customer service and, the, and account management. Uh, so, so Dominic and, and the rest of my team are, are doing a good job working with the senior leaders uh, to get to yes, right? So we start with yes, if we, uh, and then make sure we have those things, you know, rather than saying, no, you can't do this uh, because of, of, you know, whatever reason it might be. And I think that's helping change the culture. Um, I think uh, we're educating our, our business partners on what they need to, to make sure that uh, what they want to put on the network is, is secure. You know, like any other change, uh, it takes a little while, but uh, in my three years with the department, uh, I've seen the conversation change quite a bit. There's plenty to talk about with cybersecurity, but I'm going to jump to something else instead now. Let me go back to Scott. One of the things the IT report also mentions is around an upgraded financial management system. And this is another project that I've been following for quite a while. VA has tried to move to the USDA's National Finance Center. I'm not sure what the status of that effort is. I know it's outside of, it's a CFO project, but with a heavy technology focus. Scott, can you just give us a little bit of an update of how those IT upgrades are going for the financial management system and what path are you guys taking now? It's still going. It's still in, in, in uh, progress. You know, originally we were going to be doing it more in conjunction with the uh, Department of Agriculture. You know, we had to shift plans a little bit, but we are um, going to be bringing that announcement. That's still something. Uh, one of our, our strategies is buy first, right? Look out for commercial off-the-shelf uh, solutions. Uh, so we will be implementing that. Uh, Paul Tibbetts on my team is, is working very closely with the uh, our, uh, CFO's office, the Office of Management, to go and, and drive that. So uh, th that absolutely will be happening and, and uh, is in progress. And, and I know you guys, are, I think, released an RFI recently. So that's uh, that's part of the progress that I guess we're starting to see about the buy first approach. So obviously good news there. Yeah. And, and that relates back to this discussion around cloud. Uh, John Everett from your office uh, mentioned the role that he was on a recent panel that I was able to moderate, and he talked about the really focus on cloud. Talk a little bit about the, the role that cloud will play in your IT transformation and strategy you're using as it relates to both your IT modernization, and I guess it goes back to financial management as well. So John's been a terrific add to the, the, the team as we've looked to kind of upgrade our talent. Uh, John came over from the FBI and has really devised the, the, uh, the cloud strategy, and that will play migrating to the cloud and will play a huge role in helping us decommission uh, legacy systems, getting more effective and more uh, cost efficient with our, our infrastructure overall. 
it, it's still emerging. We still are, are kind of early on in our migration to the cloud. We have, um, you know, Amazon Web Services and Azure that we're, uh, you know, pushing. So we, we still uh, have a, a ways to go with that, but that will play a very uh, important role. Okay, I just remember, I didn't remember if it was an RFI or an RFP, and, and that if I was an RFP, I know maybe the award wasn't made yet, so I didn't want to put you guys in a bad yeah. spot. So, yeah, I appreciate that. You guys are using the cloud to some extent, correct? Or is, is are most things still on-premises, but maybe in a VA-only cloud right now? Right now, most stuff is on-premises, but we are, you know, starting the micro. So we're putting some application on the cloud. But th this is going to be, you know, now that we have John on the team, this is something that we are uh, going to be moving aggressively forward with you know, starting now. Okay, excellent news. I'm sure you'll get a lot of vendor calls now, so my apologies on that side. <laughs> we have to take a break. My guests are Scott Blackburn, the Acting Veterans Affairs Department's Chief Information Officer, and Dominic Cassatt, the Veterans Affairs Department's Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Scott Blackburn, the Veterans Affairs Department's Acting Chief Information Officer, and Dominic Cassatt, the Veterans Affairs Department's Chief Information Security Officer. The other piece to this discussion around cloud and modernization is data center optimization and reduction. You guys also have made some significant progress in terms of reducing data centers. Maybe, Scott, talk a little bit about that effort, and then maybe, Dominic, come in about the security side as you guys are reducing data centers. It's also helping with your cybersecurity. So start with Scott, please. Our starting point was something like 395 data centers, which is just absolutely, you know, insane. I think we're down to about 363 right now. We, we closed 24 in FY17. We're on track to close 68 in uh, FY18. Our end goal is uh, 44 data centers, 42 specialty uh, data centers that are basically uh, things that are required, like our consolidated mail order pharmacy, you know, that, that need their own servers and their own, own data center. And then uh, each individual hospital will have their own uh, computer room, essentially for patient safety and, and quality reasons. So it's an aggressive plan. We're, we're hoping to get there, uh, or our plan is to get there. We will get there by uh, the end of FY 2020. So that that's a, a big area that we're we're pushing on with uh, Eddie Pool lead, leading that. Let me jump in real quick before Dom. Uh, you, you cut off for a second, Scott. So you said the end goal is something, and then also 42 specialty data centers. Can you just say uh, what the end goal is again? 14 core data centers that that uh, will be our primary data centers. 42 specialty data centers. That would include, you know, data centers to, to service, you know, FDA require, requirements such as our consolidated mail order pharmacy program, and then each one of our uh, individual medical centers, of which we have about 168 of, will have their own kind of uh, computer rooms. Not really data centers, but uh, they'll have their own computer rooms for patient safety reasons. And Dom, talk a little bit about from your perspective how this reduction in data centers will also play into the progress around cybersecurity. Yeah, this consolidation has helped us immensely because um, most of us in CIO's office inherited sort of this mixed bag of all these uh, disparate data centers that were built to suit uh, over the years uh, to meet a certain environment's uh, needs. There was no standardization, no uh, reference architectures, uh, cybersecurity architectures that were followed. So now that we're consolidating and, and getting all of those uh, reference architectures normalized, it 
makes it so much easier for us to do even just basic cyber hygiene because, you know, two of the core components of that are patching and configuration management. And when you have so many data centers with so many baseline configurations, uh, it's very hard to keep that under control. So this is helping immensely. And I know it's also the attack surface as well. Eventually, when you get down to 14 core data centers, that attack service shrinkage will be huge because you won't have to worry about 300 different attack services, just those 14. Exactly. Uh, so, some could argue, hey, if you have this many different uh, disparate configurations and attack services, that is almost a security feature in and of itself because it's hard for the adversary to figure out, <laughs> you know, where, where everything is and what's going on. But, the, you know, that's, of course, not a great way to secure your network. So, yeah, having fewer attack surfaces to defend and uh, more controlled, normalized security architectures and, and baselines uh, that, that we can manage directly, you know, really does help. So I see we're almost out of time before I let you guys go. I just want to hit upon one more topic. One important thing that I saw was uh, in, the, in the IT strategy or the IT report was a new IT strategy where you're realigning programs and projects. And what's interesting to me, Scott, is you guys either migrated or stopped more than 230 projects. Talk a little bit about the thinking behind that, because that's sometimes the hardest thing to do from a CIO's perspective is to stop that emotion of you know a project that's been around for six months or a year or five years. Talk a little bit about that effort. <laughs> You're exactly right, and, and uh, it, it certainly is a, a challenge. But you know, one one of the issues it, it, um, with with VA and coming from my role, first leading the My VA transformation, then the deputy secretary, and then over to here, we try to do everything. And uh, as a result of that, we, we tend to else way too thin and, and drop the ball on, on everything as a result of that. If you try to do everything, then you end up doing, doing nothing. So uh, a big focus of my, mine has been focusing the organization. And what are the things that are really going to move the needle and uh, focusing on those things and resourcing them, them correctly. We only have a finite budget. We only have a finite number of resources. And, and that means that we have to go make trade-offs. And um, where the relationship with our business partners and VHA, VBA, BDA, uh, National Cemetery Administration are, are so incredibly uh, important. And uh, we've been having these difficult conversations. And, and for example, with, with VHA, really understanding their, their priorities. Uh, Alan Costanchin, who is the account manager for VHA, has done a great job working with them on uh, a business plan each year. So uh, this year, we've kind of nicknamed it 18 for 18. There's 18 specific projects, things like scheduling, things like electronic health record, caregivers, suicide prevention efforts that we have listed out in a, in a business program and, and, and service level agreement that these are the things that we're going to focus on and deliver. And if curveballs come to us at the end of the year, we go and have a, a conversation with, with VHA leadership and say, hey, this, this priority has come up. How do we make the trade-off between that and, and get aligned versus, you know, what has been done in the past is kind of promise everything, try to make everybody everybody happy and, and not deliver on anything. So this has been kind of a big core focus of our strategy going forward, figuring out what matters, make sure we deliver. All right. I know we could talk much longer, but you got, I know we're, we're out of time. So let me thank my guests today, Scott Blackburn, the Veterans Affairs Department's Acting Chief Information Officer, and Dominic Cassatt the Veterans Affairs Department's Chief Information Security Officer. Scott, Dominic, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you, Jason. We have to take a break. In the last segment of the show, we hear from the Air Force and their plans to better secure their networks. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. 
In this segment of the show, I sat down with Air Force Major General Patrick Higby, the Director of Cyberspace Strategy and Policy in the Office of Information Dominance and CIO in the Air Force. General Higby, let me just start with the, the Cyber Mission Forces the Air Force putting together. Talk a little bit more about where they fit in, because and help clarify, there's the U.S. Cyber Command has cyber mission forces, but this is different. This is more specific to the Air Force, correct? Yeah, that's right, Jason. So the I, I know this is confusing to those outside of the department, but we uh, stood up U.S. Cyber Command, and they have our cyber mission forces, which come from all services, and the Air Force contributes 39 of the total of 133 cyber mission force teams, and those are everything from a national mission team down to a uh, cyber protection team. So that's the U.S. Cyber Command forces that uh, report to Admiral Rogers, who's the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. On the Air Force side, what we've done is uh, we're developing our own organic capability. We're calling those mission defense teams. So just like you heard General Shueto during his lunchtime address, he talked about the difference between the cop on the beat versus the SWAT team. So the the cyber protection teams, again, those are the, I'll call them heavier, more capable forces that are focused on, in many cases, a wide, diverse set of cyber terrain, whereas a mission defense team that's operating at a specific Air Force location supporting the five Air Force Corps missions or one of those core missions or the 12 Air Force Corps functions or one of those core functions, that mission defense team is focused specifically on that mission that that Air Force unit or that Air Force wing is trying to accomplish, be it in garrison or in a uh, deployed environment. So we have, uh, as I told you earlier, we have 44 Pathfinder units uh, currently in the inventory, and we're looking, we're very hopeful for FY18 this fiscal year and then next fiscal year in conjunction with Enterprise IT as a service rollout to pivot workforce that's in the in the business of providing IT services at those bases, pivot that workforce to doing the active defense of our missions in the cyberspace domain. And these mission forces are really focused on everything from weapon systems to infrastructure to your old PC desktop type computers as well. And I think that's the bigger difference between them and, for instance, the, what U.S. Cyber Command is doing, which is more of the broad network defense. That's true. Now, there are pieces of U.S. Cyber Command that, that focus on infrastructure as well. But what, what we're focused on with these mission defense teams as part of our Cyber Squadron initiative is, again, looking at the specific mission that that base is trying to accomplish. So I'll use the example out at Shriver Air Force Base. We have the Air Force Satellite Control Network. There is a cyber squadron and a mission defense team that's focused on understanding what are the dependencies for that Air Force Satellite Control Network to operate effectively, what man-made or natural things could happen to influence the operation of the Air Force Satellite Control Network, and then how would that mission defense team counteract those things, both proactively, if possible, or predictively, if possible, or preemptively, if possible, and worst case, reactively, if needed, if something happens that they didn't uh, weren't able to anticipate. And then you can extend that to any Air Force mission, whether it's generating air superiority with uh, launching Eagle or Viper sorties, or it's uh, agile combat support, which is one of our core functions, uh, making sure we can get logistics to the right place or to get a tanker to the right location to facilitate a strike package, just making sure that as those missions dependencies on the cyberspace domain are so critical 
that there's a mission defense team that's actively working within that domain to protect that mission as it's being executed. So there may be a point in time where the traditional client-server network is very important, for example, during the planning phase of a mission to launch fighters. That's very important. Once the fighter launches, maybe that's less important, and we now need to pay more attention to things like our Link 16 network. How did you guys decide to go down this path of the mission side? We looked across the five core missions of the Air Force, and we recognized that every one of those core missions is very dependent on the cyberspace domain. And we really didn't have a good site picture of the dependencies for to execute a given mission. So to example, launching a four-ship of Vipers, of F-16s. What are the cyberspace dependencies to do that? And there are a number of them. So the mission defense team gets training in mission threat analysis to understand what are all the dependencies. And it's everything from a dependency to the fuel pump that is used to put gas in the fighter to the codes that are used to activate the munitions that are loaded on the jet to the pilot's medical record. Again, all of these things exist in the cyberspace domain. The uh, electronic control for the hangar doors, again, an ICS SCADA system. How are they protected? Who's paying attention to them? What vulnerabilities are there? And how do we work around those vulnerabilities when something happened? And we really didn't have a, a good understanding of that. We were just focused on communicating and launching the mission, and then the triad of move, shoot, communicate in, in a tactical sense. And we didn't really understand the, all of the dependencies on the cyberspace domain to execute either a kinetic or a non-kinetic mission in the Air Force. One of the things that we heard at the FCA Nova airspace cyber event is this idea of risk management that came up several times. And, and, and basically what you're asking each of the missionaries to do is look at their risks and say, okay, where can we, because you can't look at everything and, and they have to understand, okay, what are our risks? And for this mission and this part of the mission, what risks do we need to pay attention to today, tomorrow, and the next day? Right. How are you guys promoting that? Because it's, I can just imagine, as you just went through the F-16 example, it could be a thousand of them. You're, you're spot on, Jason, and that's why we're, we're trying to push, you know, in the, in the, our command and control concept has not changed. So it's centralized planning, decentralized execution predicated upon mission command. So we want the lowest level commanders to make the decisions and make the informed risk decisions at the lowest possible level. The last thing we want to do is use the cyberspace domain to quote unquote Sovietize our command and control. We don't want to do that because then we will lose initiative, we'll lose agility, so on and so forth. So what we want to do is make sure now that those subordinate commanders really from their, from their uh, mission defense team or from their cyber squadron, that they get that understanding of that wing commander gets a briefing, just like the wing commander gets a briefing before we launch a sortie on the weather, on the intel threat. Well, if somebody needs to brief him on the cyber dependencies, where the risks and threats are, what are the workarounds, and in some cases it might be, hey, we need to change the path of the sortie because of something going on in the cyberspace domain, which could be like electromagnetic interference perhaps, or we need to find a way to fight through it and maybe we need to do some active defense to protect that sortie while it's generating through some piece of the airspace. One of the things we also heard at the event was around the adversaries were looking at ways to interrupt 
the ability of a, a stealth bomber or an F-15 while it's in mid-flight. Is that the other piece of this, that you're seeing a change in the threat vectors? Yeah, absolutely. And and what what uh, quickly dawned on us is the you know the easiest way to defeat a stealth bomber isn't in the air. It's actually uh, while it's sitting on the ramp and getting ready to launch. That's when it's most vulnerable. There are so many more uh, tie-ins in the cyberspace domain prior to launch. All the planning, all the crypto, all the comsec that needs to be worked to get that bomber ready to generate a sortie. And, it, and you know, I mentioned the, the pilot's flight records. The maintainers have to get onto the base. To get onto the base, they have to have their ID cards scanned, right? So there's an attack vector. So that mission defense team needs to look at all of that and understand all of those dependencies, which is why we give them that mission threat analysis training. So they learn the process of how to do a mission threat analysis, and then they apply it to their specific mission set so that that way they can brief that wing commander or that squadron commander on here are the risks of the mission, here's how we're working around them, here's some other things that might pop up and what we would do if in those contingencies, and then it's up to that subordinate commander to make that informed risk decision whether to launch the sortie or not. The one piece that stands out to me is the people side, the trainers. How, how do you get people trained to do this? Because this is not, as you said, something you wake up to do. If you tell me, oh, defend my network, okay, I can be trained to do that. But defending the mission is a different perspective. Can you just talk a little bit about how you guys address that? The mission threat analysis will become part of our formal training pipelines. Uh, we also recognize that having that hunter mindset, so the CVA Hunt platform is our platform that we use, the toolkit that we use for the Hunt mission. But get, getting that mindset of every cyber operator is a hunter, for example, and, we, and it's hunt in the sense of not only hunting for the adversary, but hunting for threats to the mission, whether they're generated by the adversary or by a natural disaster or by unintended electromagnetic interference, all of those are threats to the mission. And I want our uh, cyber airmen that are in these mission defense teams to be actively hunting for that and to have that mindset. As you pointed out, Jason, that requires training. That requires a, a slight cultural adjustment. But I think our airmen are ready for it. They're eating it up. The other thing we're doing is we're um, to, to facilitate our airmen getting faster into the fight. We're modularizing all of our training pipelines so that airmen can move at their own pace instead of waiting for the lowest common denominator. They can now accelerate at their own pace and move through their training much more quickly. We've flipped the classroom, put, put the airmen, uh, you heard General Schwedo talk about crowdsourcing, get the airmen together to think creatively about problems, and they learn from each other by doing that. You flip the classroom to do that. You have an instructor to facilitate that to make sure the learning objectives are being met, but in many cases it's now directed by the students, by the airmen themselves. We're also looking at uh, blended learning, so a mix of brick and mortar kind of learning where you need to bring a team together physically so they can understand crew operations vis-a-vis -vis what could they do individually on their own. In many cases, they can do that from their home, on the couch, download an app, get the interactive experience uh, th through an online platform. As you put together the first 44 of these teams, this has been ongoing for several years. Are they all 
and nobody's ever done learning when it comes to cyber, but they're at the point where you guys consider them as full operational capability. Are they still in the initial operating capability? How do you kind of measure where they're at? They're, they're definitely all still in the IOC phase, initial operational capability. We'll better define our full operational capability as we scale this across the Air Force. Our initial, you know, our initial criteria was do they have the equipment and did they get the mission threat analysis training? And so though, once those two criteria were met, we called that IOC, and that gave them enough to move forward. As we anticipated when we started with the original 15 Pathfinders uh, t- three years ago now, some charged down a path that we sort of predicted. Some sat in the corner and didn't necessarily know what to do. Uh, some went down a path that nobody predicted at all, and, and they came up with some remarkable insights. So between all three of those uh, outcomes – we're now trying to determine what, what are the minimum number of standards or training or TTP that we need to put in place to make sure that they can serve that JFAC in the cyber sense, which is our uh, 24th Air Force commander when it comes to the cyber domain, to make sure that there's deconfliction so that we don't inadvertently have one of these mission defense teams do something to defend their specific wing mission that then has other implications on other mission owners, and we didn't plan for that. So we do have to have some degree of uh, understanding, sharing, and deconfliction as we move forward. The one key piece to all of this that kind of is kind of on top of all this is the enterprise IT as a service. Uh, General Schwedo, the Air Force CIO, talked about this, how moving people from being trouble ticket people, help desk, if you will, to the cyber mission warriors. Uh, from your perspective, that's still several years away, but that seems to be the underlying key to, to really pushing this out much more broadly. Uh, I would not say it's several years away. As General Schwedo mentioned, we have the undaunted support of our senior leadership in the Air Force. They are all in. Our chief of staff just uh, wrote on one of our papers the other day saying, what will it take to make this go faster? So our initial plan was in FY18 that we would do seven installations and then perhaps 10 in FY19 to do enterprise IT as a service. And the question now becomes, okay, what would it take to do more than seven this year? And I think the number for FY19 has already changed to 12 or some other number. So the, the uh, support is definitely there. And the question, the, the challenge for us now is, okay, how, how do we roll this out uh, in a way that gives us the actual benefit that we want to where airmen coming into the Air Force today get the latest technology, they get good connectivity, they get access to trusted applications and trusted data to allow them to, to do their mission. And by the way, that's probably one of the, the biggest uh, retention uh, bonuses as well, is if you can give an airman training that they need to be successful and access to trusted apps and trusted data to be successful in their mission, guess what? That airman's probably going to stay in the United States Air Force and keep serving their country. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard from Air Force Major General Patrick Higby, the Director of Cyberspace Strategy and Policy in the Air Force's CIO's office. Earlier in the program, you heard from former VA Acting CIO Scott Blackburn and current VA Chief Information Security Officer Dominic Cassatt. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes.